Hello and welcome to Productivity, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. This week's episode inspiration comes from me. I've been trying, really, really trying to build an ethical wardrobe for the last few years now. And I've dabbled in this in a variety of ways. So I try to only buy clothing that has a good rating on the Good On You app, buying secondhand clothing, mending my existing clothing, and generally trying to avoid chain stores. Now, there's a few things that are challenging for me when it comes to buying ethical clothing. As a size 14 to 16, it is really slim pickings in op shops. I seriously don't understand it, but there will be meters and meters of size 8 to 10 clothing on the rack and maybe like 10 very average pieces in the 14 plus section. I find that mind blowing because 14 to 16 is the average size of Australian women these days. So surely we're buying the clothes and then donating them back. I don't understand this surplus of size 10 clothing. I also struggle with the cost and style of a lot of ethical fashion clothing brands. And I don't really want to spend a lot of money on something that's not my style. I find it really, really hard to be perfect in this regard. So, this time last year, I bought a gingham linen jumpsuit at Kmart for about $25, and I absolutely love it. I wear it at least once a week. In fact, I'm wearing it right now as I'm recording, which I didn't even realize I was doing. I've been feeling really, really guilty about buying this because Kmart is problematic for a variety of reasons. They're not transparent enough with their supply chain. Their environmental standards are quite low. There's a whole gamut of reasons why I'm trying to avoid buying things from Kmart. But also, I just love this jumpsuit and I wear it all the time. And surely if I buy something that is loved and used and adored and mended, then surely that's a good thing, right? So, I decided to get an expert on the show this week, like a proper, proper expert. Her name is Claire Press, and she's an ethical clothing mastermind. She's got two podcasts, one called Wardrobe Crisis, which is the same name as her book. And she also has a podcast called Ethical Fashion that's produced in conjunction with the UN. I honestly can't tell you how excellent both of these podcasts are, mainly because Claire is such a fantastic host. She's like the Louis Theroux of ethical fashion. So, she was also one of the first people that I interviewed for productivity, and she was so generous with her knowledge of podcasting and interviewing You're really going to love this because she's just a marvelous person to chat to. So, here is my interview with Claire Press about realistically building an ethical wardrobe. Also, just a pre-warning, when I talk to people with British accents, I tend to posh up a little bit. So, my apologies if I slip into fancy mode in places during this interview. Claire's voice is just so melodic. I think I just subconsciously was trying to imitate it. Anyway, here's the interview. We have a lot of listeners on the show that are very interested in ethical fashion, and I'm thrilled to have you on the show as an expert in very much the the deep background stuff of that, not so much, you know, shop at this shop or buy this particular thing, more of the the really, really deep stuff. So let's jump straight into it. Uh, You are a fashion aficionado, aficionado, sorry, (laughs) 
stumbled on that word there. Uh, but you're also a reformed fashion over consumer. So aside from your wardrobe almost literally breaking from being over full, what <laughs> tipped you over the edge into dedicating your work to sustainability in the fa- uh, fashion supply chain? Well, first of all, I love that you called me a fashion aficionado. I've never been called that before and I like it. <laughs> um it's actually true that my wardrobe broke, which people always think is like this literary device because I have this book called Wardrobe Crisis and they don't imagine that anyone's wardrobe actually does break from the weight of clothes piled within it. But that is, it's not just a story I made up. It really happened. <laughs> um, was it an old wardrobe? No, it was the rack. So, you know, the, <gasps> oh. so the whole wardrobe didn't explode, although maybe it did. But the rack that held up all the clothes just snapped. And the bad part of this story is not even that. It's the fact that I didn't even realise because there were so many clothes rammed in there that they were holding themselves up by themselves. <laughs> Oh, my God. So kind of like a towel that you haven't washed often enough and it's just standing up from its own grime. Bit like that. Um, Now, I would just like to um, make an excuse for myself and say that I'm not really a fast fashion buyer. So I wasn't buying heaps of cheap clothes every week, but I'm kind of a hoarder and I still am. I'm not really very well reformed with that. So I've kept everything I've ever bought. And, you know, over the years, working in fashion, I used to work in fashion magazines, I accumulated large amounts of clothes, lots of vintage, um, lots of, I don't know, just lots of clothes. And the snapping of the wardrobe was certainly a moment of reckoning where I thought, oh, come on, this is absurd. I'm like, it should be on storage hoarders. It was before that came out, but, you know. Um, So that was obviously a thing, but really the catalyst for me to start being an activist in the fashion space was not my own wardrobe, but was uh, a story of a terrible garment factory disaster that happens in Bangladesh. Um, And perhaps we're going to talk about that later, but uh, just if listeners don't know about this, it was in April of 2013, and this was this sort of multiple... Um, multiple factories in the one building outside of Dhaka in Bangladesh and the building had started to crack the day before and workers had actually been ordered to go back into this unsafe building even though that was known because there was so much pressure to get these orders out for all these cheap clothes and so when the building collapsed many many people lost their lives Um, it was all over the news and just watching it made me realize that I was part of this system so I think that that was that was the thing for me. So talking about how you are so enthusiastic about fashion and how you hoard fashion, there was an excellent part in your book where you're talking about Sarah Wilson. So she wrote the the foreword of your book. For those of you, for our international listeners, Sarah Wilson is uh, an Australian writer and she used to be the editor of some of our very big magazines. She then launched her I Quit Sugar program and has now kind of turned into a environmental warrior, so to speak. She has a very very famous pair of green shorts that she wears all the time. And there's a part in your book where you're talking to her about um, how unnecessary it is to have just, you, you don't have to, you know, condense your wardrobe down to one small pair of shorts. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that a lot of people really struggle with when it comes to, comes to sustainability in clothing. They think that means that they have to have, you know, one pair of shorts and one t-shirt that they wear until they fall apart. But like Sarah. <laughs> Yeah, like Sarah, exactly. So what are, what are your thoughts around sustainable wardrobes versus minimalist wardrobes and how they kind of intersect? So let's imagine that we all want to live more sustainably. 
and more lightly on the planet. If you just want to look at the eco side of sustainable fashion and we can get onto the human side because they are deeply interconnected and we shouldn't really separate them. But just looking at, at the environmental impacts of clothing, waste, overconsumption and you know, some of the terrible polluting aspects of how we make our clothes at sheer crazy volumes. If we just look at that, um, I think we all want to be more sustainable. We all want to make less of a negative impact on the environment. And sometimes the sort of logical conclusion would be we'll have less um, and less might be expanded into less on a design side as well. So what I'm trying to get at is there's this idea that sustainable fashion is all neutral and all about the capsule wardrobe. And it's only the kind of, I don't know, the simple white shirts and the basics and the grey mile t-shirt. And you can have one and it's organic cotton. And in Sarah's case, just because you mentioned her, she literally is an anti-consumerist warrior who wore the same pair of green shorts for something like eight years until they fell apart. And then her family thought it was so funny that they framed these fallen apart shorts and gave them back to her for a birthday or Christmas or something. <laughs> and then she bought the exact same pair again because she was like, these are all I need. And once they've gone, I'll just replace them. And that's how Sarah looks at it. But this idea of minimalism, I think, can be quite difficult if you're a person that likes visually maximalism and fancy things and I do like a frill or a pattern or um, the kind of more is more aesthetic so I think I don't want people to be put off by the idea of sustainable fashion only looking a certain way uh, do we have to have less yeah we do but we also need to enjoy what we already have and find and seek out the value in that and not be wasteful um, with what we've already got so I mean there's lots of different layers to it I I do think that there there is, for the right person, power in the capsule wardrobe. But I'm not really that person, as I said. I've still got, like, lots of clothes, and I, I love them. I see value in them. They're not going into the wheelie bin anytime soon. Wheelie bin's a very strange phrase, isn't it? The red landfill <laughs> bin in Australia. But um, perhaps we can talk about that. I think sustainable fashion has to be around looking at waste and how we manage that and how we fight it. So if you did have items in your cupboard that you no longer loved and that no longer served you what do you do with those items particularly because you clearly have a, an emotional attachment to a lot of your clothes because you you love clothes and beautiful things so much well I think as a sort of as in inverted commas the western world in advanced economies I think that we're suffering from stuffocation and let's just remember it's a privilege to have too much stuff you know, there's billions of people on this planet and to be able to be able to afford to buy in excess is a privilege. However, if we look at, you know, somewhere like Australia where we're where we live, um, I think we're suffocated. I think we've got a crisis of too much stuff. I think fashion's become too cheap and too accessible. And and we've been sort of, I don't know, gorging on the ability to get more and more stuff now if you're listening to this and thinking well actually i'm not really a clothesy person i'm not a fashion person here's this woman who used to work in fashion magazines talking to me about clothes well i don't relate i just ask you to think about expanding that definition of fashion um to take in all clothes so workwear children's clothes uniforms whatever you i don't know where to play sport swimmers uh you know all shoes 
even textiles. So when we talk about the mountains of clothing and textile waste, it could also be bedding, you know. Now think Towels. about yeah, absolutely. And now think about how much of that you've got, even if you're not a fashiony person. Perhaps you've got a family or perhaps you live on your own or perhaps you live in a share house. Doesn't matter. Look around you and see all the stuff you've got that falls into that textiles and fashion category. And I think many of us can relate to this idea that we've just got too much. We're suffocated. So I've forgotten your question now. I'm like banging on about waste. <laughs> no, the, what what the, do we do? Yeah, what do we do? Like when, when you are someone who has a huge, wonderful collection of clothing or even if you're someone who just deeply bought into what we all did in the 90s, which was buy horrible cheap tops yeah. every Friday night when we went out for drinks. I know uh, I have lots of girlfriends who have wardrobes full of these terrible tops and they're kind of going, well, I, mm. I have them now. Uh, what do I do what with do them? I do with them? Well, do you know that on average, we only wear 40% of what's in our wardrobes? So chances are you do have stuff in there languishing, unloved, that you're not getting wear out of. Now, what should you do with it? I mentioned that one of the things we need to really centre is waste and not chucking stuff into the landfill bin. So the worst thing you could do is just take it all outside and chuck it in the bin. <laughs> we always talk about there is no away. I'll share another stat with you. Every second, one garbage truckload of textiles and clothing enters landfill somewhere around the world. It's crazy. So what do you do? I mean, there's so many different routes to it. It does depend on the quality of what you have. So if it's sellable and in good condition and you've just decided you've had, your, had enough of it or it doesn't fit you anymore, then you could consider reselling it or donating it. Please think of those two things in the same sentence, because if you have got something that is not good enough to be unsold, why would you donate it to an op shop or a charity shop? Because they're going to have to deal with it. And if it's waste, they actually have to pay to send it to landfill or to deal with it in another way. So sometimes they can unsell it to make rags, for example, or car seat stuffing. But your, the responsibility starts with you. It's your stuff. So I would say, first of all, have a good hard look at it. Is it salvageable? Is it saleable? Could you swap it with a friend or pass it on to someone who would get use out of it? If it's damaged, could you fix it and repair it before you then pass it on so it can have an extended life? If it's completely ruined and no one's going to love it, there are different routes, but they're not perfect. And perhaps we could share some links because there's loads of different kind of avenues and I don't want to sort of rattle them all off, but I'll give you two examples. There's a company in Australia called Man Rags, which accepts old socks <laughs> and deals with them for you. And then they'll give you like, I don't know, some kind of voucher for getting new socks from them. So they're looking at a circular economy for socks, which is one of the biggest, you know, what the biggest, but one of those thorny problems. What do you do with the grotty old socks? Um what would be another example? Well, you know what? Maybe you could, if you're crafty, consider how you could upcycle these things yourself. And that's not for everyone, but do you ever do that? Would you ever I do, do that? I do, yeah. I'm, I'm very much, a, I'm a crocheter and a knitter. Yes. And <laughs> I do. I actually, I knitted this that I'm wearing right now. Oh my God, really? This <laughs> yes, is so brilliant. Okay, so <laughs> if you're crafty, maybe you could figure out how to upcycle, make something old into something new. Um, you probably couldn't, Maybe you could make your own 
you know, strips to weave with. It's not going to be as fancy as your cardigan, but you, <laughs> no, know. you never know. Yeah, I do. I, I love the idea of, of upcycling things and mending things. And yeah, we're, we're big menders in this household. But so I, I really do love that, it's, that suggestion. It sounds a bit like, oh, come on, who's going to do that? But there's so many different resources online. There's so many groups you can join. It can be fun. Like if you're crafty, I think that there is actually a world of joy to be had in making something out of what's been discarded or would have been Absolutely. And there's a beautiful book I purchased recently called Visible Mending. And there's a whole movement around mending. I think mending in the past had to be very fancy and it had to be very precise and it had to be perfect. And and you didn't want anyone to know that you mended your clothes because it was sort of seen as a bit shameful. But I think we've evolved a bit since then. And there's a, there's beautiful artistic things that you can do with, with visible mending. So I I just wanted to mention that because I think that's a really important thing. I love it. And also, it, it's actually, this is really happening. There's a movement around this where mending's cool. Like, people want to have that visible mending. It's like a badge of honour. I have a beautiful, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I think it's called Aushmama. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, pronunciation but it's a company that make uh, bags out of washable paper. So they're vegan and, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very lovely brand. This big, massive tote from them that I absolutely loved. And I used for, you know, eight years and the top just started wearing away a bit. So I just gaffer taped around the top of it and I've had another five years out of it and it's still going strong. And another one, which seems obvious, but I think we can forget that we have still got, and let's make sure we keep them in our communities, on our high streets, in your local just local shops we've still got menders we've still got shoemakers shoe menders cobblers what do you call them <laughs> it's probably not cobblers. that many there's probably not that many handmade shoemakers but you know i've got a, a cobbler up the road for me his name is roger he's i live in redfern in in sydney and roger has been in the same shop since 1964 that's amazing and he's still in business he's still in business and he's amazing that's fantastic taking me a knackered shoes and they can you say knackered sorry <laughs> You can absolutely say knackered. Go for it. <laughs> and 10 bucks later, they are good as new. So let's remember that you can repair. And also, if we don't use these services, they'll disappear. Absolutely. We've, I've got a beautiful cobbler in Albury, which is uh, near where I live. That's my biggest centre. And there's a, it's like a tower. So it's really it's in this very iconic building. And it's a lovely little shoe repairer that's been there, you know, for about 50 years now. And I, I just there's just something so nostalgic and marvellous about going to a, a cobbler that's been there for so long. Also, I know this sounds a bit lofty, but I believe in the fabric of our neighbourhood streets. And I think that without these services and experts, whether it is someone who is a clothing alterationist or a cobbler or whether it's your local fruit and veg seller or baker, these are the experts that we can learn from and we can talk to and that kind of stitch together the fabric of how we... I know I'm using loads of fashion analogies, but I like the idea of it. Like if we this is what makes character where we live and do you want everything to be online do you want to not have access to experts who've been there and seen everything and can tell you you know stories i want to keep that stuff i think that's part of sustainability Oh, absolutely. And also I, I'm so thrilled with YouTube and how you can basically teach yourself how to do everything. But there are some things I don't want to do myself and there are you need the experts to do it for you because they know the mistake that you're about to make before you've made it and they can, you know, just do a much better job of it. Mm. So in your book, Wardrobe Crisis, you state that 92% of clothing sold in Australia is actually manufactured overseas, aside from obvious points of not buying local, locally made items. Can you explain why this is an issue? 
Yeah. So that stat might have improved a little bit. Um, I wrote this book a while ago. It came out in 2016. But at that time, about 8% of what was for sale in Australian stores was manufactured overseas. Um, and I have heard that it's slightly climbing up because there is more of an effort being made at the moment to try to invest in Australian brands and local making. If you want to check out some of this stuff, there's a website called Ethical Clothing Australia that lists some of the brands, all of the brands that are accredited by that by that scheme, but some of the brands that are doing a great job of making here. Why does it matter? It's a really broad kind of subject and it's not right to say that anything that isn't made here is bad or that everything made here is good so I don't want to give that impression but generally speaking if your clothes are made in a country that you've never been to maybe never even thought about or seen or engaged with um, it's very difficult to understand how those clothes are being made and to see what's going on there you've never been you haven't visited the factories now you might say well I haven't visited a factory in Australia However, if we're talking about, let's use Bangladesh as, a, as an example. So that's currently about the second, I think, um, biggest clothing manufacturing country globally, the first being China. There's about 4.1 million garment workers in Bangladesh. Most of them are young women and most of them are not paid a living wage. Now, brands have been, we talk about sort of chasing the cheapest workforce or chasing the cheapest needle is a phrase I think I used in my book, but it's like brands are incentivized to make things more cheaply and so they search for low-cost countries where regulations are weaker than they are somewhere like Australia and what that means is that the garment worker often although not always gets the raw end of the deal so I mentioned Rana Plaza the factory disaster I mean that was an extreme example where I mean, workplace health and safety was just not even a consideration. We're talking about 1,138 people losing their lives and an estimated 2,500 people being, 2,500 children being orphaned. This is extreme. And yet, if you, if you want to look at what's happening right now with COVID, um, something like half the workers in Bangladesh were on the verge of destitution, not being paid when orders were cancelled by big brands. And that's because they don't have the social safety nets that we have in more advanced economies. So is it really bad to buy something made in Bangladesh? No, I don't believe we should be boycotting stuff that's made in other countries. But I do think that the lack of transparency in the fashion supply chain, I know that's very wordy, but just think about the supply chain as being all of the people and companies that form the chain behind how stuff we buy has been manufactured. So in fashion, it's like from the factory where they sew it right back down to the field, perhaps where the cotton's been grown, if that's the fabric, right? If that supply chain is really long and might be all around the world and it's not transparent, we at the consumer end haven't got <laughs> any chance really of understanding what's going on in it. Absolutely. Um, speaking of runner plaza it, it was huge it was a massive event and it, it i think was the first time that a lot of people had ever actually thought about the supply chain because it did make local news everyone heard about it have you seen any of the mass enthusiasm wear off at all since then so like h- how do you keep your message going when the shock of a big scale tragedy like that has worn off yes and no i actually feel really optimistic that it's not worn off. So, of course, after a big event or a big headline-grabbing moment, the pressure 
falls off a bit and people start looking at the next thing. And we live in a cycle of like horrible news all the time, don't we? I mean, someone was saying to me the other day, they thought Black Lives Matter was being treated like a trend and that everyone was supporting black owned businesses, but now they're not. And actually I saw a, we could share a tile. Someone had a tile. Um, I just saw an Instagram that was showing the difference between June and now in terms of people believing in the importance of Black Lives Matter in the States. So when things are in the headlines, everyone's looking. And when they're not, people are looking less. But I think we've seen a movement, a growing consumer movement around sustainable fashion. In fact, I know we have. I've seen it happen. And so in the sort of six, seven years that have passed since then, huge change in the numbers of people that are even thinking or talking about this um what do you think i i, I actually agree because that was kind of the the big catalyst for me in caring more about where my clothing came from and consuming less and i, I was never a terrible clothing consumer it just me. made me a lot <laughs> no no because no, you you were saying before that you were a fantastic <laughs> consumer because you you were never really into cheap fashion you always bought beautiful items I was very similar I've always been an op shopper I've always been a mender but you know I would still go to a mall and grab a cheap $20 t-shirt when I needed one um, and that kind of thing I actually had a, a incident that I spoke recently about on my blog I tried to get a pair of exercise tights oh man don't ask I'm struggling so much <laughs> so hard so hard and so I spent months and months I had this one pair of Adidas tights that I wore until like that like I've had them for six or eight six to eight years now and they were splitting at the seams but they were so great because they don't fall down when I do burpees so I'm very very fussy about my exercise pants because they cannot budge at all or I will just get angry and so I I tried about 10 different ethical brands they all rolled down I ended up returning them and then I was like well now this is just turning into an exercise in too many carbon emissions uh and because I live in the country I don't have a lot of stores available to me After four months, I'm not even joking, four months of trying to find them, I desperately went into a Lorna Jane in uh, Albury and I tried on a pair. They were marvellous. I took them home. Then I Googled Lorna Jane and I felt terrible because there's just so many things wrong with them. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I got a few thoughts on this. One, we have to sort of pick our battles, right? Um, do you want to... Thank you for saying that. Well, <laughs> I, well, the first thing I wanted to say was I wish... I actually work in my wardrobe, which is ridiculous, but in lockdown... I mean, my wardrobe is sort of also my office. Um, so if only I could actually grab my current arseless pair of Lorna Jane... Of not Lorna Jane, they're... Um, you Lily just Lennon? said that. What are mine? No, they're the upside, right? So they're really expensive tracksuit pants and the arse has fallen out of them. They've literally fallen to pieces and I'm still wearing them because I'm constantly jumping online looking for a replacement and can't find them. So I can only wear them in the house. (laughs) And if you have to go to the shops, you really have to make sure that you've worn a coat. Um, But what I would say about that is pick your battles. You can't be perfect. And also no brand is all bad or all good. If you Mm. have bought something that you can afford, that's going to do the job, that you're going to get a lot of wear out of, don't feel guilty. It's not your fault if a company hasn't ticked every single sustainability box. But I do think we can try to make the best choices within our power. And that isn't always going to be perfect. I've been looking for, I keep looking at Bond's, um, re, I've forgotten the name of it, but they make a, basically a recycled cotton tracksuit pant, but they only have tiny sizes. And every so often I look because I'm interested in having these recycled ones, which are quite hard to find, but I can't get them. So 
you know. Can I make you feel better about that? (laughs) I actually bought a pair of the recycled tracksuit bottoms and the biggest size kind of just fit me. And they end up with a very sloppy knee. I ended up returning them. Do they? Yeah, sloppy knee. So I was like, I I can't, I can't, I can't do a sloppy knee. So Um, I ended up returning them. Another thing is, do you really want to to buy secondhand exercise gear? I don't personally buy secondhand shoes. I know that it's good. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I just don't really fancy it. And I don't really fancy buying secondhand exercise tights or undies. So, you know, pick your battles. See which area you can make change in and what's reasonable for you. What's within your price bracket. If you can do a bit of research and you have the bandwidth to do that and you can look at different brands online and see how much information they share about how they make stuff, that's a good start. But if you can't, I really don't want people to feel guilty. The system is what's at fault, not you. And yeah, the absolutely. system's what love- needs to change, yeah. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that. That's that's something that's coming to my attention a bit more. There's a lot of onus on the individual to make changes. And I think that the plastic straws debacle is one of the best instances of that where it's really become a consumer problem to not use straws and we're like okay we actually need to go higher because yeah if a straw's there you're going to use it and it needs to be higher than that and also it's a cop-out for our regulators and governments to say well consumer choice will change this or pass the buck I mean, perhaps they don't say it, but to act like it's not their responsibility. It's the responsibility of big business and and governments and regulators to ensure that the system serves those within it fairly. And I'm talking about garment workers, but also let's think about the environment as being, a, let's personify the environment. I like the idea of that. I like to think of nature. I always use capital N when I write about nature. And sometimes, oh, I sometimes Mother Earth, because I like to yeah. also feminise her. <laughs> but like, well, let's think about stakeholders being also nature and so it's not up to every consumer to protect nature and to protect garment workers it needs to be all three things together so we do have power our choices do matter but we also need companies to move and to recognize that the big responsibility lies with them and also for governments to regulate yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there, there's a beautiful chapter in your book about Betty Halbrick. Is that how you say it? Halbrick? I think it's Halbrick. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Halbrick. Uh, so she has been working at Bergdorf Goodman's in New York for basically her whole life. And she's the most celebrated personal shopper there. <laughs> I'm sure she's not even considered a personal shopper anymore. She's just uh, an institution. She's a ledge. Yeah, so there's um, a chapter in your book um, about cherishing clothing and treating them as works of art. Do you think that we can get back to a place where clothing is is a prized item of pride? Oh, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, I think that's one of the things I would like to see happen and that we do have power over, which is um, our relationship with clothes. That's something that we can control and that we decide. Um, I often talk about how it's a bit sort of wafty and airy fairy isn't it this idea of connect when you bring it to bear on fashion people go what do you mean like (laughs) isn't a fashion surface or commerce but I like the idea that we can connect with our clothes I think that that's what we've lost um emotional feelings around them and I like the idea of clothes being clothes like holding memories you know when you've got a favorite thing and you look at it or you touch it or you put it on and it reminds you of this special time you wore it Um, And I actually have memories all pinned around clothes and not just weddings, but, you know, all kinds of personal moments. So I love that. So I think connection is really important. Betty, right? I looked her up because I was like, I hope she's still with us. 
So when I interviewed Betty for this book, it was probably 2015. And at the time she was in her 80s and she was she had been working at Bergdorf Goodman, which is the iconic, fancy New York department store. She'd been working in the same job since 1976 as a personal shopper. And she'd worked there or another, maybe Neiman Marcus, another one earlier than that. She's now 92 or actually, no, I looked it up. So. In December last year, W Magazine, the fashion magazine in the US, did a profile on her. She was 92. <laughs> I mean, how fab. She was still doing the job. Oh, my God. But uh, Betty wrote a brilliant book called I'll Drink to That, which is her memoir of just being a colourful character. But the reason why she's a f- sort of fab person to talk to for me is that I love the history of clothes, but I also love the way she approaches fashion with a kind of reverence but also a weird practicality at the same time. So she looks at clothes as being um, objects of, you know, things that we ought to have really take care over choosing and think very carefully about how they're going to last in our wardrobes and what they're going to do for us. But she's also kind of like a bit of a bitch in a great way. She's <laughs> yeah, like, she is, take yeah. that off, it doesn't suit you. So sort of <laughs> weirdly practical plus reverence, which I like. Anyway, the point about Betty is that she belongs to an old age or a previous age where we had to save up for things um, more and we bought into beautiful clothes as objects that we would have to keep because we'd invested in them and even though some of her customers are like very rich I don't know Joan Rivers was like a customer so perhaps that I'm not suggesting that this doesn't come without privilege and there weren't really rich people just buying whatever they fancied from Betty but her idea is not that her idea is which my grandmother also had um choose carefully buy something that you really care about and then live with it and intend to do so for a really long time I love that. Um, so you are a host of two podcasts. You have Wardrobe Crisis and Ethical Fashion, the latter being created in collaboration with the UN. So Ethical Fashion focuses more on human sacrifice of unethical fashion supply chains. And you've said before, uh, before we started recording, that you're not super into tips-based advice, so you're much more of a storyteller and you like to get into the nitty-gritty of things. Uh, but can you please give our listeners three tips for shopping ethical for clothing or what you think the three most important considerations are if you're trying to look at a more ethical, sustainable, kind wardrobe? When I say I'm not super into tips, I do believe in the power of, um, I'm not going to, I don't know about tips, but you know, it's powerful to be able to say, here's a bit of a roadmap. Here's a plan. Let's try and do some of these things and integrate them into our daily life I guess but what I don't like about tips is it's it's like people want this easy unlock if I do these three things will fashion be sustainable and I just don't think it's that easy I think that the way that we make fashion sustainable and also other stuff sustainable is by engaging more deeply with it and educating ourselves around it and getting passionate and excited about it and going down the rabbit hole of finding out about what bits of it really resonate with us so that's why I'm not super up for tips. But of course, I can give some tips. I mean, let, <laughs> let's, I mean there's e- let's, let's call them places to begin. Um, one of them would be to... Okay, let's do a wardrobe audit. Um, I think this can be useful because if you... You know, I talked about supply chains and 
looking at clothes that are made on the other side of the world. What you can't see, you can't take action on. What you don't know, you can't even begin to fix. You know, that analogy of like, if you're going to try and, I don't know, pick a town, whatever, if you're going to drive from Sydney to Newcastle, you would need to know that Newcastle was your end destination in order to get there. You couldn't just get in the car and hope. So with your wardrobe, you need to know what's going on in there before you can change it. So an audit would be, and you could do it with a, I actually like the idea of doing it with a notepad and pen because when you write stuff down, it's sort of like stuck in front of you and you can't escape it. <laughs> but you might want to count how many things are in there. Woohoo! <gasps> yeah. <laughs> you might want to, and I'm not a professional at this, I'm just making it up as I go along, but I like the idea of it. Um, I have done it as well. Um, you might want to see if you're falling into that bracket of, do you wear 40% of it? Do you wear the lion's share of it? Is there a lot of stuff that you haven't even remembered is in there? Maybe, do you fall into the 40%? Um, I wear a lot of different clothes all the time because I'm a fashion... I sort of play with clothes. So I don't tend to wear the same thing every day. Um, I still have too many clothes, but I do wear a lot of different things and I like to dress up on themes in vintage things, <laughs> even if I'm just at home and no one can see me. So I do get do wear you- out of it. I don't know. Do you find vintage shopping in Australia is not as fun as other places? No, I love vintage shopping everywhere. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's the hunt. I always, I always find that I get much better stuff when I travel and shop in vintage stores overseas. I just reckon that's because you've got a different headspace because you're excited that you're on the trip because it's everywhere. I don't know. But let's go no, back. I like to, that. Can we come back to this wardrobe order of thing? Course, because yeah. somebody, I have never done this, but a podcast guest, and I was just listening to it again the other day for a project. She's the founder of something called Vestier Collective, which is a French but global uh, high level, high level, I mean, a bit more expensive resale site. So if you have designer stuff, you can resell it on Vestier. And in the interview I did with this woman, Fanny, Fanny Moisant, who's got a lovely French accent, she said she'd done this thing where she turned all of the hangers uh, the wrong way around in the wardrobe and then was only allowed to turn the top of the hanger the right way around after she'd worn a garment. And then after a certain period of time, whether it's a year or six months, you have to then do the cold, hard look at what has not been turned. And I, I think that's an interesting thing because it's like everyone's going to find out there's stuff they have never considered wearing. And if it's, uh, I don't know, a ball gown or a wedding dress you want to keep, okay. But if it's just a jacket or a skirt or something you bought on a whim that doesn't fit you anymore or whatever it is, if you haven't turned that hanger, you're not going to wear it. So I wardrobe order. That, that would be my, my first one. You asked for three. I'll do two really quick. Um, become a label reader find out where your clothes are made just by looking in the in the care label and just maybe then you could move to the next step of like googling some of these brands and seeing what information they share and then three has to be fight like a fierce warrior woman or man or anyone it's not gendered god let's not say that fight like a (laughs) fight like a warrior person to not stick clothes in the landfill bin Find all the different routes that you can and do that homework to try not to do that. And I think that it can also be, it's, it makes you feel really good when you find a fix around that. 
I absolutely love that. Those, those tips were fantastic considering you don't, you don't love your tips. <laughs> uh, so this podcast is a self-improvement podcast. It's also about productivity. Uh, and I know a lot of people want to make better wardrobe choices. Uh, a lot of people struggle with this because of financial reasons, body size reasons, and also simply forgetting that they care about it. I, it sounds daft because it's something I really do care about, but honestly, sometimes I just forget and buy something on impulse. Do you have any advice for solidifying a commitment to mindfully consuming fashion? I actually love this question because I had mentioned the need to reconnect before. I think mindfulness is one of the least considered ideas and words that we could uh, consider, that we could bolt onto this whole fashion conversation. Like, if we were more mindful in our fashion choices, we could fix so much, right? It's mindless consumption that's got us here. So how do we do it? I mean, maybe the best way, which is not, again, it's not really a very good tip because it takes a lot of effort. <laughs> it's not just something you can just do, but oh, well, you could start. But I think it's about connecting with the stories behind the people that make our stuff. If you know someone has if you know how they've done it like the process of how they've made something you just have an emotional connection to it that's completely different and so for me mindfulness in fashion comes from understanding the stories behind how what we wear has been produced and there's actually loads of ways you can find that stuff out if you want to look like in in the social media world it's not that hard um even if it's like literally looking up a locally made brand and then you know dming them on instagram and asking them questions or um, you know, I quite love that. You, you just get a different connection with, with the designer or the person who made it. I do think price is something we should talk about. Sustainable and ethical fashion can be seen as quite elitist and a sort of privilege to be able to engage with, which locks other people out that don't have that, you know, don't have the money or don't have the time. And I really want to try to sort of fight that because it needs to be accessible to everyone. And if we're making this conversation all about designers and I don't know, we, we, we do a disservice to the conversation. We need to make sure that everyone can get involved and there are different routes to it. it. It's not about saying to like someone who's doing it tough, you have to spend more on something you can't afford. It's not about that. But I think being mindful is around maybe not buying stuff on a whim if you have the bandwidth, really doing a little bit of research into finding a more sustainable option, it doesn't always have to be that much more expensive. And then sometimes it's about, um, you you know, people always say choose well, buy less as a sort of catchphrase. But do you need to buy three things? Maybe you could buy one thing of better quality and keep it longer. So there's, I think there's different ways in. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I just really no, want to make no, sure. It does. Yeah, I just don't want people to think that it's only for f- rich people. <laughs> Yeah, I, I also struggle a lot with the uh, size inclusivity of sustainable fashion. And it, I mean, it, 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 it goes across so many different areas of ethical fashion in that a lot of ethical fashion brands don't cater to bigger sizes. Also, op shopping is a nightmare if you're not a size eight. You know, what, what, what are your thoughts on size inclusivity? It's a nightmare, um, as in the industry has created a nightmare by being so ridiculously 
narrow in its view on who is its customer it's just completely galling and drives me mad i just did an interview for the pod for my wardrobe crisis podcast with an incredible writer in america called kia brown this is different but she was talking about disability and accessible and adaptable fashion so um she has cerebral palsy she needs to have accessible clothes she's a brilliant writer she wrote an excellent piece in the new york times called disabled people love clothes too but just this this question around why is fashion so one trick you know why is it all about and obviously it's a giant industry and there are different facets of it but i just think too much of fashion is focused on young skinny white able-bodied and it's it's changing but it's it's annoying and i i we need to just hold brands to account and make noise about it and size inclusivity is just a huge thing you know not just within sustainable fashion but fashion in general there's just too many brands making too many excuses saying well it's too expensive for us to do a broader size range that's rubbish you you think that i i wouldn't know if that's rubbish is that rubbish look it's more expensive to sample more sizes so if you're a smaller brand maybe Mm. you could make the case for we can't afford to extend the sampling beyond two or three sizes however Mm. I also know plenty of examples of brands who've managed to do it extremely well. And also, let's remember what the average clothing size is, because it's not a size age. Your market Mm -mm. is not even being catered to if you're only offering small sizes. Yeah, I love that. Um, Oh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, do you know, you probably would know of Good On You app? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel? Because I've been using that quite a lot. It's kind of a, I I feel like it's the lazy person's way of double checking on, you know, sustainability and the supply chain of my clothing. I I find that, uh, which is great. A lot of the ratings actually jump up and down and there will be a a brand that has a good rating for a couple of months and then it will slip back down again. Uh, how, How do you feel about people using that kind of as their sole source of information like I do? Um, I feel like you need to start where you can. And so Good On You is a fantastic app because it's free. Anyone can get it and it's top level. So it's when I may say that, I mean, it's sort of, it'll give you a, a glimpse into the beginnings of this story. And it will, it basically rates brands on, I think, three different things. So how they treat animals, how they treat people, how they treat the environment, not in that order. No, in no order. <laughs> but you can see ratings. So you can say, yeah. okay, is X brand doing well on human rights? Is X brand doing well on environmental impacts? And you can make your choices accordingly. And there's also lots of other information on there if you want to dig a bit deeper. I think it's good. I don't think it's definitive, as mm. in I don't think that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's a great thing for people to access. I, and also it's Australian. It's a brilliant story because they're an oh, Australian. Oh, I didn't actually know yeah. it was Australian. Australian startup and they've gone global and they've had a huge impact so oh that's fantastic because I I, the one thing I really like about it is how much Australian stuff is in there so that explains it wow fantastic I like that it's free that anyone can get it yeah so it's just it's a great educational tool I think and they've got a really good pricing strategy, like structure that I really enjoy. They've, they've just got like three little dollar signs and it's like one dollar sign if it's affordable and it goes up from there, which I think is really good because as you were saying before, you know, a, a, affordable, ethical fashion should 
you know, be available to the masses. Absolutely. So um, I would love to know about your habits. This podcast is uh, mainly about productivity and habits. So I like to interview people who do fabulous things and then ask them how they do those fabulous things. So what do you do every day to stay on top of your podcasts and your writing op-eds? And do you have any systems or habits that you use every day? Or are you more fancy free? Like, do you have like, like what sort of systems did you use to write your book, for example? Mm. I suck at this actually, Carly, sorry. So I did actually write down something that I would like to share with the listeners. Um, There's a, unfortunately, when this podcast comes out, probably this particular course will cease to be free, but they have a program of courses, it's called Commune, where they're always free at the beginning and then they want you to pay if you want to have extended access. But this one that I've just done is with a guy called Dr. Pedram Shojai. He's a former monk and this thing's called The Art of Stopping Time. If it's finished by the time you listen to this, just Google him. He's got YouTube videos. He's amazing. He's like kind of like the rock in a monk form. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And someone sent it to me and I'd done one of these commune courses before about a philosopher, um, with a philosopher. But this time thing was like, my friend was like, you need this. <laughs> and um, it's just about trying to get, I mean, in a, in a nutshell, it's about how do you set your attentions for the day? How do you stop flapping around like a nutter because you're not centred and mindful? <laughs> um, and how do you allocate your time in a meaningful way and not waste time when you could be using it for better things i need more of this <laughs> i'm kind of crap at it i'm like a overworker um and but that's all part of it chill. Like, i don't know I don't, what do you think uh, no, I just I, I just enjoy asking people who have achieved a lot uh, and, and particularly people who are writers and particularly podcasters because we had a chat about all the different levels of stuff that you have to do with podcasting and staying on top of it. It's so much harder than people realise doing podcasts. And so, yeah, I just, I'm just always interested in people who manage to do things at such a high quality in, in the way that you do and, and how you. you manage that even if you're a, a, a flighty person or you have trouble staying on task. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, the answer is, and I think this is something people don't talk about, actually. The answer is that it takes an enormous amount of effort. I make more effort than is realistic. Now, I'm able to do it because I don't have kids. And that's another thing people don't talk about. Um, and let's not set unrealistic expectations for people to just be crazy overachievers when you know, something has to give. I don't have kids, so I have a lot more free time or time to dedicate to work than you would do if you were busy, if I was a busy mum. And so I think it's about just recognising that everyone's on a different journey. My journey, that sounds so American, perhaps I've been listening to Dr. What's It too much, (laughs) but has just been always about work. I, I, I used to have no purpose. I used to work in fashion, um, in a, in the media and, it was enjoyable but it didn't drive me now I'm very purpose-driven I want to change the world I want I think of myself as an activist and a sharer of sustainable sustainability knowledge I'm trying to build accessible platforms so that I can share what I've learned and it's relentless but I also love it but I spend huge amounts of time on it like I'm talking about 10 hour days I work every weekend I work at night because I do a lot of work in Europe and the time difference means that's how we do it um, however, I also love it. So it's inseparable from my, it's just what makes me tick. It's not a chore, but I don't, I don't really do anything else. 
So that's yeah, how I it's do like, it. <laughs> it's, it's a real, it's a real passion. Oh, that sounds so weird. Driver. No, but I, yeah. And I'd like to share with the readers actually, cause I've, I've been interviewing quite a few people for this podcast <laughs> and you like have without, <laughs> no, 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 no. You have without a doubt been the most engaged guest that I've had. You, you were really into finding out why I wanted you on the podcast and really keen to figure out what you could bring to it. Uh, I, I, this is not trying to disregard any of the other guests that I've had. There have been some other ones that have, you know, been really engaged, but some of some people just go, yeah, cool. And then they just, I send them the questions and they're on the podcast. And that's pretty much the only time I, I spoke to them. But yeah, I think, I think your next level F- effort is, is extraordinary. And I think it is just, it's just a real passion driver that you've got, right? Well, can we talk about, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about the why. Cause I reckon, and maybe you can tell us what yours is. Cause I reckon this is what people relate to. Like, why do you do what you do? It might not be work. It might be uh, volunteering in the community. It might be parenting. It might be, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But what's the why for why you do what you do and where you put all your focus? And I think when we start to really drill down into what drives us and motivates us, everyone's got purpose somewhere or is looking for it or is yet to pin it down, but it's waiting for them. And to me, that's what it is. So if you want to talk about me, I mentioned that's why I do what I do. But I think we've all got it. And and once you find out the motivation, I think it just drives momentum. And the more successful you get at doing whatever it is, the more you want to continue and the more excited you get. And it has its ups and downs. It doesn't always work. But I think it's a driving thing that generally goes up. What do you reckon? What's your why? Yeah. Oh gosh, putting me on the spot here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but why my, are you doing this? <laughs> why am I doing this? Yeah. So this is actually I have been very interested in habits. It, originally, my blog started as a fashion blog. It was one of those daily style ones. I've had it for over fourteen years now, and it was one of those daily style ones where I would, you know, walk outside of my office, and my office mate would take a little photo, and I'd put it up, and I was on like Flickr and all that kind of stuff, and it just kind of snowballed into habits and every time I come back to everything it's all habits and my why is I want to help people use habits to lead a beautiful fulfilling Mm. life I want people to get the most out of everything and I find a lot of the stuff around that is well you have to create your own business or you need to you know be a a famous Instagrammer or you know that there's a lot of focus on doing all that kind of stuff and and I want to help a nurse who absolutely Mm. loves her job, who has two kids and is feeling a bit frazzled, try and manage what she has and what she loves without it becoming this big, well, no, you need to be this big, huge, famous, spectacular person kind of thing. I'll give you an an insight into that. Um, Please do. I was just thinking like, obviously the time, the art of stopping time thing is something I need to work on. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a failure when it comes to time management. But one of the things that I think I am getting a lot better at because I've worked hard on it is stay focused in your lane and don't be distracted by what everyone else is doing. And I say that because social media is this like pit of despair with that stuff. It's like everybody seems to be doing something you ought to be doing. It's set up to look, make you feel less or insecure it's horrible and I use it I engage with it but I don't spend my time I've stopped spending my time checking out what everyone else in the space is doing worrying if they're doing it better if they've got a bigger job or more people whatever it is 
And I think that we can all... It's, again, it's a system. Have you watched that film? Oh, God. What about that film on Netflix called The... Um, oh, I watched that. Oh. Yeah. I... Okay, so my What's my it called? What's that, it called? Um, uh, the Social... Net Trap or something? Yeah, I want to call it The Social Network, but I don't think it is. That's the other no, one. No, it's... Yeah, I, I will. Anyway, it's about it's about social media, and it's got all these experts from Pinterest and Facebook who built this thing in order to manipulate us, and who are confessing to it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I heard a lot about it before I watched it, and I knew that I was either going to watch it and go, "Oh my god, shock horror," or I'm going to watch it and go, "Well, duh." And my response was, "Well, duh, Captain Obvious." Like there, there was nothing particularly shocking in there for me. I was just kind of like, "Well, isn't this how we all feel about?" Social media, maybe? It's called The Social Dilemma. I just looked it up. Ah, um, lovely. Thank you. It is obvious, but I also thought that we need to be reminded of the obvious. And the thing that really struck me was this guy who had been the president or founder of mm. Pinterest who was saying, I built this thing and yet I would come home, try and have dinner with my kids, lock myself in the bathroom and desperately search it because I couldn't stop looking because it's addictive. <laughs> it's just crazy. I, I, I do the same thing. I try very hard to only be on social media if I'm adding to it I try not to consume it kind of at all anymore really like if I if I upload something on Instagram I'll have a little flick for 15 minutes but then I back away well I I use it in order to tell stories around the podcast and to talk to listeners and to engage and I love it you can find me at Mrs Press on Instagram I'm not very good at Facebook but I'm on Twitter less a little bit less but Instagram I do love to engage with people on it but I, I'm really rigorous with who I follow so I'm not going to look at the things that make me feel bad I look at the things that make me feel good and the ways I can find out more information and I think if you re yeah one of the things that would be a tip would be make a little make a little promise to yourself to re sort of jig your social media so that you're only really looking at things that inspire you do you find that in your industry, because it's, you know, sustainable fashion and it's, it's a good thing, do you find that it, it kind of naturally is a, a lovely area for you to be and there isn't so much of that horrific stuff that makes you feel terrible? Yes, <laughs> I right. really do. It's full of inspirational people. It's so nice. Yeah. And it's lovely because it's different to, um, I'm not saying that conventional fashion is not nice, but it's a different, it's different. It's full of people trying to change things and that's very inspiring. Same with environmental activism. There's stuff that makes you mad, of course. And at the moment, I'm very angry about fracking or mm. offshore drilling. And so obviously there's stuff that gets you. But there's also so many people doing amazing things to try and change it that I find that it's motivating. I felt so much better about ethical fashion after talking to Claire. She kind of re-gave me permission to buy and enjoy clothes again, but also to think more about forever clothes than I had been previously. So since talking to Claire and in the last year, I've been really into modifying clothing and finding ways to wear my clothes until they literally fall apart. So here were some of my favorite things that uh, Claire said for being realistic about building an ethical wardrobe. So it's really important to choose your battles. So you need to decide what's important to you. And here are a few questions that you need to ask when you are buying clothing. What is the environmental impact of this item? What is the socioeconomic impact of this item? Was everyone in the supply chain paid and treated well? Were any animals harmed in the production of this item? 
what is going to happen to this item when I no longer want, need, or can wear this item? It's really hard to get an item that covers all of these bases. So you need to pick what's the most important thing for you. For example, some vegan products aren't amazing for the environment because of the use of synthetics, but then conversely, a lot of sustainable fabrics like cotton can be unsustainable if they're produced poorly. My two top priorities are environmental impact and socioeconomic impact. I obviously care about animals, but I do wear leather and I do eat meat and I believe in sustainable and cruelty-free practices of using animal products and animal byproducts in clothing production. So that's where I stand. Some people are very into products that are completely cruelty-free and completely free of animal products, and that's perfectly fine. That is just something that you would need to take into consideration when you're ranking the important things when it comes to buying ethical clothing. I recommend choosing your top two priorities and aiming for those. So mine are environment and also protecting the people that actually make the clothing. So if I have to make a compromise on a piece of clothing that I'm going to buy, I will probably compromise the animal aspect of it because the other two things are more important to me. So make the choice that works for you and works with your own moral compass. Don't beat yourself up is another really important thing. You don't have to have a fully sustainable wardrobe. If you find an amazing cheap top that you absolutely love and you're sure you're going to wear until it falls apart, it's totally fine to buy it. My rules are it must be made from mostly natural fibers and I have to absolutely love the item and not be able to live without it. That's it. That means in the past year, I've bought a boutique Australian designed jumpsuit and also the aforementioned one from Kmart. They're both excellent and I've worn them both heaps. I do try to avoid buying fast fashion and the Kmart jumpsuit did require quite a few alterations because not surprisingly, it wasn't super well made, but it's 100% cotton and I've worn it heaps. You don't have to be perfect all the time. Also as an in-betweeny, that's, I identify as an in-betweeny, that's someone who isn't quite mainstream sized, but also isn't quite plus sized. Getting clothes that fit me well is really, really hard. I just think, you know, it's all well and good for Mary Kate Olsen sized people to have 100% sustainable fashion wardrobes, but it's a touch harder for the rest of us. I would much rather buy something I love from a good quality chain store that I will wear and mend for years rather than spend a lot of money on something sustainable that I won't wear because it's not quite my style. And this doesn't mean that I drop $20 on a new top every five minutes at Target. It means that if I find a lovely 100% natural fiber piece of clothing that I love in a chain store, I can buy it. No biggie. But I have to love it. Absolutely no excuses. I also struggle a lot with kids' clothing because kids grow out of clothing so quickly. And our kid obviously is one of those kids that grows out of clothing really, really quickly. I'm trying to avoid buying stuff from Kmart for her. I tend to go onto Facebook Marketplace or eBay and I buy bundles of clothing that, um, you know, she can wear to daycare and that kind of thing. I do still buy things for her from Kmart because if I haven't been able to find an appropriate bundle of secondhand clothes for her and she needs something in particular, I live in the country and it's that's one of my only available stores that's close to me that's going to have something that's, you know, affordable and functional for what she needs. So, it's, it is quite unrealistic to just put a blanket ban on any chain stores. And I think putting in the best effort is really the best we can do in most circumstances. And you know what? If you need to buy a pack of this from Kmart, just do it and don't beat yourself up over it. 
It's also really important to start by replacing what you have. Take it slow. You don't need to become an overnight, fully sustainable wardrobe master. Just do whatever you can. Everyone loves strict rules and things being binary, but it's okay to wear $600 handcrafted shoes with a cheap t-shirt that you bought years ago at a $2 shop. Just try to make sensible choices where you can. That just about wraps it up for this week. Thank you for listening to Productivity, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at carlyjacobs.com. That's carlyjacobs, D-O-T-C-O-M. You can also email me productivity at carlyjacobs.com. I really, really love hearing from listeners. So seriously, don't be shy. I also really love it when people call into SpeakPipe. That is speakpipe.com forward slash productivity to leave questions for the podcast. We've had quite a few people calling in recently and it makes me so excited. So if you have a question or something or a topic that you'd like me to cover, please leave a message on SpeakPipe. That would absolutely thrill me. Also, if you love the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Even $5 a month would be a huge help in covering production, editing, equipment, promotion, and guest wrangling. Just visit patreon.com forward slash productivity. Oh, and one more thing, please leave a rating and a review. It's the best way to help other people find the podcast. Until next time, remember, little habits, big life.